0: Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series, the world's largest weekly leadership podcast where I, Scott Miller, serve as your weekly host and interviewer. You may be aware that just about nine months ago, I published a book, from Collins, called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds that featured 30 of the guests from our first couple of years where we share a different transformational insight about each of them, including a new volume coming out called Master Mentors, Volume 2, where I feature 30 new guests and 30 new insights releasing in October. Our guest today is, in fact, featured in Volume 1. She, of course, is the unparalleled author, Susan Kane who wrote the book Quiet, The power of introverts in a world that can't stop speaking. That book is on our set somewhere. Get these facts. Quiet spent eight years on the New York Times bestseller list. Was Fast Company's named number one book of the year. Susan Cain is um, the fourth highest ranked, if you will. Um, Sorry, I'm going to start that over. Fourth, what is that? LinkedIn named her. Sorry, I I need to start over. I'm sorry, Susan.
1: No I want, worries.
0: I, I want to get your, I want to get your, inter, your intro mm-hmm. right, so let's start over. You ready? Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series, the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, both in audio and video. I'm your host, Scott Miller. I'm also the author of several books, including Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where HarperCollins Harper published the book where I was able to feature 30 of my favorite guests from the first couple of years, where... Each of them shared a different transformational insight, and Master Mentors Volume 2 is coming out in October with 30 new mentors and 30 new insights from the podcast as well. In fact, today's guest is Susan Kane. She was featured as one of the 30 mentors in the first volume. You may know Susan as the incomparable author of the very famous book, Quiet, whose tagline is the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Listen to these facts about Susan's book, Quiet. Spent eight years on the New York Times bestseller list. Fast Company named it the number one book of the year. LinkedIn named her the sixth most influential influencer in the world. And her TED Talk has been viewed 40 million times. Her new book just out is called Bitter Sweet. How sorrow and longing make us whole, and is this week holding firm at the number one spot again on the New York Times list. Susan Kane, welcome to On Leadership.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. It's so great to be here with you again.
0: Great to see you again, Susan. Now, perhaps of all the accolades you've earned, all the number one best-selling books, you were, if you recall, our first guest. We taped you first four and a half years ago. We ran you as the second episode, but you were our first guest. So (laughs) that you chose to come back, given my very novice interviewing skills four years ago, is great appreciation. Thank you.
1: I don't think you were novice at all. I still remember that interview so well. And so it's so great to see how the podcast has developed. Since then
0: That's awesome, and you're, uh, you're very gracious to actually have come back. Susan, talk to us around first why you named the book Bitter Sweet.":
1: This book this book was born from a very specific catalyst, which is I can't um, read it. I can't read it. this lifelong experience that I've had when listening to bittersweet, minor key music, um, you know, music that should supposedly be sad. But I kept having this experience and and then realized through research that many people do. um, I kept having this experience of finding that this kind of music, instead of making me feel sad, made me feel kind of uplifted and connected to all of humanity um, and a kind of deeply creative impulse. And I started trying to figure out what the heck was going on with that. Um, And I went down this path of research, not only about music, but realized that there's this whole tradition that spans centuries and continents that looks at kind of the way in which we all experience joy and sorrow at the same time maybe not in a, in a given hour but you know in, in the course of our lives there's always going to be joy and sorrow there's always going to be light and dark that's the nature of reality but that coming to terms with that reality is one of the keys that unlocks creativity and connection and yet, we are living in a culture that is telling us only to look at the light side of the equation. Um, our culture sees it as somehow kind of distasteful even to admit the way that light and dark go together. And I think that that's we're doing ourselves a real disservice.
0: Susan, it's a simple but I think profound question. What is sadness good for? What's its purpose as you see it?
1: There's been really fascinating research into this. Um, our ability to feel sad—not only does it help us process the experiences we might be having, but as human beings, we are designed to respond to other people's sadness, and and this had this is an evolutionary design. Basically, it's because we were born as um, as babies who are quite vulnerable when we show up on the planet, um, and. When babies cry, their caregivers are primed to notice that crying and to want to respond to it. But what, what's ended up happening is that we do that not only for our own babies, but we have the capacity, not just the capacity, but the, like the, the visceral impulse to respond to the, to the distress of other beings. So for example, we, we all have a vagus nerve. This is the biggest bundle of nerves in our bodies. Um, It regulates everything as fundamental as breathing and digestion. But also when you see another being in distress, your vagus nerve becomes activated and it makes you want to do something. It makes you care. It makes you um, experience viscerally a a taste of what that other person is going through. Um, And this is why I say that sadness is one of the great connecting forces that we have. And especially now when we're living in such divisive times, one of the ways out of it that we could find would be for us all simply to be able to share the truth of of the sorrowful, sorrowful times that we all experience, because it's one of the great ways we have of joining together.
0: Susan nicely said, uh, when I first interviewed you four years ago for your book Quiet, we joked about it. Had I written a book, it would have been called Loud because I'm an (laughs) extrovert and you, of course, are more of an introvert. And uh, I mentioned to you my brother read your book twice. You know, he is a a MIT graduate, master black belt, Six Sigma. He loved your book. It's like his validation in life. And Mm -hmm. Quiet, of course, is not mine. It actually made me a better leader. I had to deal with people more effectively, who are introverts. Similar with this book, um, I I didn't have the same resonance because I failed your bittersweet quiz. In the very beginning (laughs) of the book, you have Uh this provocative, I don't know, 10-question quiz. And it basically says this, you know, do you tear up easily at touching television commercials? No. Um, Are you especially moved (laughs) by old photographs? Uh, No. Uh, Do you react intensely to music, art, or nature? Uh, No. Uh, Do you find comfort and inspiration on a rainy day? No. Hang in there. Um, Are you moved to goosebumps several times a day? Uh, No. Um, Do you feel elevated by sad music? Now, it reminded me of Daniel Powder has a song called Bad Day. You know, have you had a bad... (laughs) Whenever I hear that song on the radio, I turn it off because it depresses me. Mm -hmm. Talk talk to the other side of the world that is me, where I kind of avoid sadness and bittersweet stuff at all costs because I would say at the surface, maybe... It brings me down, but you might ar- argue it actually, perhaps, uh, doesn't help my relationships with others or allows me not to process my pain.
1: Um, yeah. Well, first of all, <laughs> that was hilarious, and um, <laughs> and you're not alone. I I did an interview not long ago with Andrew. Hey, by the Deckard. way, that's
0: a Michael Jackson song. You are not alone. That also <laughs> kind of depresses me. See. <laughs>
1: Um, so, you know, Angela Duckworth, who of course, wrote about grit. Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. So so we did an event together not long ago talking about bittersweet and she had the exact same experience with the quiz. She was like, oh my gosh, I got a zero. Um, <laughs> I got a zero. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the point is not like that there's one right way to be. You know, the point is that there are different ways to be. And this is one of them that it, that is intensely valuable. Um, I would say, you know, even to somebody like you who's not prone to bittersweet states, that there is going to come a time still um, in your life and the lives of others where where you won't be able to help um, but immerse in those states. And, and you won't be caught as, and, 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 and people can be caught blindside if they're not kind of aware um, of of the light and dark in life. So it can be useful to just go there. Like, I, I mean, you could think of it in terms of, of what the Stoic philosophers talk about, you know, where they, they, they have the idea of um, memento mori, um, which is the idea of remember death, which I know in our culture, and you're probably reacting this way, you're like, why would I want to be doing that? Um, but what the Stoics have always talked about is the way that tuning in to the fact of how impermanent everything is is a way of also tuning into how precious it is Um, and i'll i'll give you an example of how that has played out in my life i started doing this practice when i read about it from the stoics Um, and i started this at a at a time in my parenthood where my my boys were pretty little so this was a time where i was we were doing like this bedtime ritual every night Um, and it was also a time where when i was pretty busy so I was having trouble, honestly, doing the bedtime ritual and not also checking my phone at the same time, like checking all my incoming emails. But then I started doing this Memento Mori thing. And I found, and, and, and so I would say to myself, you know what, like you might not be here tomorrow. They might not be here tomorrow. Who knows? We have no idea. And I was like, instantly, I put the phone down and I had no desire for it. I started just leaving it in the other room. And it wasn't like, I was then dwelling on morbid thoughts. It was more like I would have that reminder and suddenly be tuned in to the preciousness of everything. Um, so that's one way in which I think anybody can kind of gain access to these
0: states and to their powers. Well, Susan, to that point, the book caught me off guard in a good way. It really made me think about, am I glossing over what might be valuable, bittersweet moments? Am I just you know, constantly... Um, in motion. A few episodes ago, we had the honor of interviewing Deepak Chopra. And he reminded me that there are human beings and there are human doings. And I'm very much a human doing. And I think he's very much a human being. There are not two different people on the planet than Scott Miller and Deepak Chopra, as you know, (laughs) Uh, or Susan Cain and Scott Miller. But yeah, we continue to get along and exist. But your your book spoke to me in that way, to help me to recognize is there, are there bittersweet moments that perhaps I am glossing over or that I'm not learning from that will help me be a better parent, a better leader, a better spouse, partner, friend? I'm sure the answer is yes. Speak to that point, which is, do you think processing bittersweet experiences is actually good for our physical and mental health as parents, as leaders?
1: Yeah. And we actually know this. Um, so the psychologist, um, Laura Karstensen, she's at Stanford and she studies longevity and, um, she has found that older people are more, much more. They tend to be happier. They tend to be tapped into a state of meaning. Um, they focus more on the meaningful relationships in their lives. Uh, they experience more gratitude. So, like this whole suite of attributes that I think most of us would would like to have. And at first, she assumed that the reason for this difference was just because you know, you know, there's that folk wisdom of like somehow older people are wiser. So she thought it, it was somehow like wisdom had been magically conferred upon older people just by <laughs> virtue of their age. But it turned out that the real factor that was driving this is just that older people are more aware that their days are numbered. Like they're more aware of, the fr- of life's fragility. And the way she realized this is because when you look at younger people who, because of their life experiences, um, have also been made aware of life's fragility. You know, like she looked at younger people living through experiences of political upheaval and that kind of thing, um, that those young people started taking on the attributes of older people. And, and so there's something about tuning in to the impermanence that all of our wisdom traditions teach us is the essence of life. Life is impermanent. There's something about that that is connected to deeper meaning. And in fact, we we see this also collectively now in the wake of the pandemic. um, There are more and more people applying for meaningful professions, like applying to medical school, applying to nursing school, um, people starting to rethink uh, their jobs in general. This is part of the reason that we're seeing more people quitting their jobs or rethinking them. Um, We saw the same thing after 9-11. Suddenly, you had a rush of people who were applying for Teach for America or applying for jobs, firefighters. So, when we tune in to the ways in which um, the ways in which life is is always made up of of light and dark, that also tunes us into this state of deeper meaning that I think benefits anybody, regardless of our temperament.
0: Susan, you seem to have grown uh, in a positive way, very philosophical since our last interview with Quiet. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you are an Ivy League trained, I believe, corporate lawyer, and you decided to pivot um, out of law and become Mm -hmm. a writer. I'm guessing a lot of our viewers and listeners today from around the world, millions of them are seeing themselves in you. We've just come out of a pandemic, as you said, and everybody's reassessing their values um, mm-hmm. What have you learned in the research and writing of this now number one best-selling book? What have you learned that those that are listening and watching might identify with to kind of urge them towards how they process their their, their bittersweet experiences and to use them for good as they maybe look to deploy the, the last days of their life, whether it's 40 years or four years?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I'd say, one of the teachings that you find, no matter what tradition you're looking at, is the idea that, um, that we're all gonna have moments of, of difficulty or even pain, but we have like two choices of what to do with those. Um, and one, one choice is to kind of ignore it. And then what ends up happening invariably is you find a way of taking it out on yourself or on other people around you because it kind of has to go somewhere. But there's also the option of transforming pain into beauty Um, And this is what the creative process actually is at its heart. Um, It's basically people who have a sense of the gap between the world in which they live and the world, the the more perfect and beautiful world that they would wish to see. And they're taking some kind of creative step in the direction of that perfection that we all long for. Mm. Um, So I guess what I'd say to people is, you know, whatever pain you can't get rid of, make that your creative offering. Um, and
0: understand that this can be the heart of
1: your of your creative
0: impulse. Susan, do you think there's a difference between melancholy and depression, chemical de- or um, you know clinical depression? Clinical depression. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah there's a huge difference. <laughs> this is actually one of the things I hope this book will achieve is to get um, mainstream psychology to be looking at this because right now, if you like, if you go into a research database and type in melancholy, you're just gonna call up a whole bunch of articles about depression. Um, But in fact, these are completely, well, I was gonna say these are completely different states of being. It may be that they're differences in kind, I'm sorry, differences in degree as opposed to differences in kind. Hmm. Um, But somebody who's tapped into, well, let me start the other way. Clinical depression is a kind of emotional numbness. You know, It's like a black hole that you descend into where you're not creative at all. You feel cut off from everything and everyone, and you have a sense of worthlessness and all of this. And that's not what bittersweetness or melancholy is like. Um, The the state of bittersweetness is much more about being connected to the impermanence in everything, but also the kind of intense beauty in everything. and we actually, that bittersweet quiz that you were just talking about, um, I put that quiz together with the psychologist, Scott Barry Kaufman and David Yaden, and they ran all these preliminary studies and found that people who score high in bittersweetness also score high in states of awe and wonder and spirituality and transcendence. So these, these can be incredibly positive and nourishing states. While at the same time, people who score high in bittersweetness, there is a mild correlation with anxiety and depression, which is why I think it might be a difference in kind. You know, it's like if you have too much of it, I think you could probably kind of fall off a cliff all the way at the end of the line. Um, But when you have it in the right amounts, uh, it, it, it can be one of the most nourishing states that we inhabit.
0: Susan, what's the correlation for those who score zero on the bitterness quiz? What's the future for us like?
1: I, 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 laugh,
0: not, I laugh not because I'm making fun of you know, the gravity of your work, of course, but uh, no, I recognize it. it doesn't resonate with me in terms of my personality, yeah. but I certainly absorb it in terms of as a parent and a spouse and a leader and a friend and a colleague that, you know, I have a colleague who works with me that has clinical depression and anxiety and you know, has suicidal tendencies, and is under the care of a, a therapist, and, and is medicated, and is highly productive, and has genius in him, and mm-hmm. that's not something I relate to, but it's mm-hmm. changed fundamentally my my leadership style. So I, mm-hmm. I absorb the insights. For those are who are like sort of relentless optimists, like me, what's the mm-hmm. downside of that? The downside of relentless optimism.
1: Yeah. Jamie? Yeah. I mean, uh, so first of all, I will say I. I guess I, I don't tend to look at things kind of in the way that you posed your question in a sense, because I like things more like we have, there's an array of superpowers on hand and we all have different ones and access to different ones. And so a relentless optimists like you, I think have access to one kind of set of superpowers yes. and, and with bittersweetness, I'm talking about a different set of superpowers and, you know, and we all know which ones resonate most for us. Um, Having said that, just the way somebody who tends bittersweet can benefit from being reminded to, you know, like there might be situations where a push in the direction of more optimism could be useful in that moment. So I would say for somebody like you, who's kind of like relentlessly sanguine, um, a push to remember fragility, right? That that we may not be here next week, we have no idea. And how would that change the way you go about your life right now? Um, that, that
0: could be incredibly mind-opening for you. I would drink more champagne, I would go to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> I would read more books, I'd do lots of things. Uh, Susan, your book has become number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I texted you a photograph or emailed you a photograph of my New York Times Sunday newspaper when it came. I was so excited for you. Why do you think, humility aside for a moment, why do you think it's been so insanely popular two weeks or however since launch? Why, why, is, is, it, is it people who are resonating with the concepts with themselves, or do you think it's people like me that read Quiet?, realized, oh, that's not me, but that's much of the world. I have to work better with them. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's both audiences? Why is it done so well? I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think that, excuse me,
1: for many people, either they have a bittersweet temperament, like the way I do. I've sort of always been this way. Um, or, or they've come to it via life experience. Um, or there's people like you where their parents, or their managers, or leaders, or whatever it is, and and they understand that that there's wisdom to be gained from that tradition that could benefit their entire team. You know, um, but I will say, I've been so struck, like after Quiet, for the last ten years, really, I've been flooded with letters from people where I hear the same thing again and again of like, oh my gosh, you know, now I have permission to actually be who I am, and. With bittersweet, I'm getting very similar letters with a slight twist. I would say it's more people saying, wow, I feel seen. I feel known. I feel understood, validated. Um, there's, There's a kind of articulation of an experience that many people have always had. But our culture doesn't really talk about it that much. So they've never been able to
0: give voice to it. Susan, we're taping this today from Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel where we're keynoting the Young Presidents Organization annual conference here and we're taping many podcasts like yourself sponsored by YPO. And I was walking from my hotel room at the MGM Hotel over to the Conference Center. That took three days to walk that. And on that three-day walk, (laughs) yes, uh, this morning, I was thinking of you, one of like four interviews today, for tomorrow, I was thinking about you and your book. I was finishing it last night in my hotel room. I thought, you know, I think the gift you gave me was this overwhelming sense of gratitude that I perhaps haven't suffered from sorrow or longing or grief or a lot of bittersweet memories that I realized I was walking down the corridor having this immense overwhelm of gratitude for my health, for my family's wealth, for all the positivity, recognizing that perhaps my time is coming. Uh, I'm almost 54 years old and I've had a fairly conflict-free, healthy, successful life. We all have two steps forward, one step back. Some of us have more challenges, but I was thinking of you as I was walking over here thinking, maybe my time is coming. Maybe the reason Susan Published this book was because I'm going to be facing some bittersweet memories, experiences, sorrow, and she's preparing me for the future. Could that be the case for some of us? I mean, I, I hope that you don't have hardships in your future. Um,
1: it could be the case. I, I, I think, into most lives, some hardship is going to come. So,
0: it, I mean, it's a rhetorical I, I question, right? Is, I mean, it's a rhetorical yeah, question. Yeah. I just, you got me really thinking about. Maybe you're preparing me to build the readiness to be more comfortable with the memories and things like that. So
1: yeah, uh, no, I, I I do think that's. I mean, I I hope it's doing that. I I guess that's what I'd say. I I hope it's doing that. But I guess what I'd also want to say is, um for people who tend to live in this state, it's not. This is what I'm trying to explain. It's it's like it's not like it's living in a state of sorrow. And maybe the best way I can find to say this is, um, I got a letter the other day from a filmmaker in LA who had read the book and he said, oh, this is describing this experience I've had all my life and I didn't I didn't know what to call it. And I've called it, quote, that holy feeling. And it would come to him also when he was listening to sad music. and Holy with a W, not
0: holy with an H.
1: No, I mean, holy with an H. So oh, I'm glad you clarified, oh, holy, oh. holy with an H yeah there's there's a sense there's a sense in which um, if you look at most religions, um, there's a feeling that's embedded in the religion. It's like a a longing for a more perfect and beautiful world. And so this is manifested in the longing for the Garden of Eden, the longing for Mecca, the longing for Zion. That's part of what religion is expressing um, is this sensation of there being a gap between the world that we currently inhabit and the one to which we feel we truly belong and the appreciation and the knowledge of that gap and the fact that we sometimes have these moments where we feel like we're actually glimpsing Eden or whatever it is those are some of the most profound and transcendent experiences that people can have Um, so it's not so So it's not only about becoming comfortable with the moments of of grief and agony that are going to come to most of us at some point. It's also about this transcendent experience that comes from the awareness of this kind of existential longing that humans are born with.
0: Susan, my blood pressure lowers when I'm around you. And my wife and the production team both thank you for that. We appreciate you (laughs) joining us today. I recognize that your book has just launched, and so for I'm sure many hundreds of cities around the world and thousands of interviews, you'll be uh, helping to support that. What's next for you?
1: Uh, well, I'm actually launching a podcast also. and it'll It's about time.
0: Launch. It's about time. Yeah, I know,
1: I know. <laughs> you know, it's like I go so deep into all of my projects that I really can only do
0: one at a time. So I've been wanting to do a podcast for years, but I yes. had to wait till this book was
1: done. Yeah. Um, I don't recall yeah. you
0: emailing me to be a guest. Is that? Are you going to be emailing me soon for that? I'll, I'll look for that. I'll look. <laughs> I haven't
1: even started putting it together yet. So.
0: Well, we can give you new tips. Probably later this year. We'd be happy to, and I encourage all of our listeners to look for Susan's <laughs> podcast coming up. Out. Susan Kane, the multiple number one bestselling author, including the first book, Quiet, and her new book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Susan Kane, thanks for rejoining us again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I'll just say to anyone who's curious, if you want to kind of stay up to date on what I'm doing, you can sign up for my newsletter, which is at SusanCain.net. And you'll hear about the podcast and whatever else we end up doing. Um, But Scott, thank you so, so much for having me. It was great to connect
0: with you again. Susan, our pleasure. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week for a new guest on Leadership.